Well, our text for today also makes a clear statement about who Jesus is and then describes two opposite responses to him. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter together. 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll look first at what these verses say about Jesus. Verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone which was rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. So Jesus is a living stone. He was dead and he was buried. And he rose again the third day, as we'll celebrate next Sunday, and he lives forever. And so in Revelation 1, John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And then verse 5 says that because we are connected to the living stone, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And Lord willing, we'll look at that in two weeks with verse 9, which also talks about being priests to God. So Jesus is the living stone, and then verse 6 tells us that Jesus is the cornerstone. Quoting Isaiah 28, verse 6 says, Behold, this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. A cornerstone was the first stone set in the construction of a foundation. All other stones lined up in reference to this stone, making it the most important stone in the whole structure. So to say that Jesus is the cornerstone is to say, that he is the solid foundation upon which all of God's saving purposes are built. Everything rests on Jesus. Matthew Henry said, Jesus Christ is the very foundation stone of all our hope and happiness. So if you don't remember anything from the rest of this message, just remember that. Jesus Christ is the very foundation stone of all our hope and happiness. By him we have access to God the Father, and through him we are made partakers of all spiritual blessings. Peter not only says Jesus is the cornerstone here in 1 Peter 2, but he also was preaching that in Acts chapter 4, if you want to turn there for a moment. Acts chapter 4. Jesus or Peter has been asked to explain a miraculous healing that took place. And so in verse 10 he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must 
be saved. And then the Apostle Paul also speaks of Jesus as a cornerstone in Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to turn over there, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And did you notice in First Peter how God the Father sees Jesus? In verse 4, it says, even though he was rejected by men, he is choice and precious in the sight of God. And then verse 6, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. So Jesus is choice or chosen. God, who is perfect in his wisdom, determined Jesus would be the one that was worthy of this role in the plan of salvation. And Jesus is precious, which means of greatest worth and highest value. God is perfect in his evaluations, and he says Jesus is precious. So let's look next at what these verses say about people's responses to Jesus. Many embraced him. We can see that in three phrases. First in verse 4, coming to him. Coming to Jesus can be a synonym for believing in him. If you go to John chapter 6, you see that. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. They're, they're interchangeable. Coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus, same thing. But in this context, in the present tense of the verb, suggests an ongoing activity of coming to Jesus, continually coming to him for everything we need. So in John 1.16, it says, From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In other words, we come to Jesus again and again for fresh supplies of grace for whatever we need each day. So coming to him, second, believing in him. You see that in verse 6. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. So trusting Christ, embracing everything he says, depending on all that he has done, resting our entire confidence in him, looking to him, as Matthew Henry put it, as the very foundation of all our hopes and happiness. And verse 6, along with Romans 10, 11, says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed or put to shame. Well, pretty clear that doesn't mean we never experience setbacks in this life. We live in a fallen, broken world. We groan along with the rest of creation. This world is not what it used to be. There's often a gap between what we would like to happen and what actually happens. So we are disappointed. We're disappointed a lot. But the main point here is Christ will never fail we will never be ashamed that we put all of our hope in him. Our trust in Jesus and in his promises will never prove to be in vain. As Larry Crabb reminds us, 
building a life on Christ does not mean building a life in a land of no storms. And I think that's what we think will happen. Like, life will be easy and smooth and just the way I want it if I'm a Christian. No, that's not what it means. It means building on a rock that no storm can destroy. So we're not exempt from storms. We're building our lives on a rock that can withstand and hold up in any storm. And then third, treasuring him. To treasure as a verb means to hold or keep as precious. And as you can see from the different versions of verse 7, sincere translators have come to some different conclusions about what to do with the first part of verse 7. And not everybody sees it that way. That's okay. I won't die on this hill. But I lean to the understanding that verse 7 is saying, those who believe in Jesus esteem him as precious. For two reasons. One, that lines up with what God has just said about Jesus in verse 4 and verse 6. In both of those verses, God calls Jesus precious, the one who is worthy of highest esteem. It also lines up with some other New Testament verses about the supreme worth of Jesus. So go to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So surpassing means greatly exceeding others, superior in quality. In other words, Paul's saying, knowing Christ Jesus is of far greater worth than anything else there is. Nothing else can even come close to the value of knowing him. Or go to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is what Matthew Henry says on this verse. Jesus Christ is the true treasure. In him there is an abundance of all of that which is rich and useful and will be a portion for us. All fullness, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, all righteousness, grace, and peace, these are laid up for us in Christ. Jesus Christ is a pearl of great price, a jewel of inestimable value, which will make those who have it truly rich, rich toward God, and in having him we have enough to make us happy here and forever. So Jesus is the pearl. He's the treasure. He's the supreme value in all of life. To you who believe, he is precious. And by God's grace, many of us this morning believe in Jesus. We esteem him as our treasure. But many others, and possibly some listening this morning, 
do not respond to him in that way. So look at verse 7 and 8 in 1 Peter. So this precious value, or to you who believe, he is precious. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So those who don't believe reject the stone that God has appointed to be the cornerstone. Reject means to refuse, to accept, consider, or submit to some purpose. So here God presents Jesus as the all-important cornerstone that he has chosen and presented to the world. And he promises whoever believes will not be put to shame, but like construction workers who are sorting through some stones and discard one that's, they, you know, we don't want to use this one in the building. Many people basically say, we don't want Jesus. We saw that this morning in Sunday school, the rich young ruler. I don't want Jesus on his terms. He's not worth it. And for whatever reason, people, many people say we don't want Jesus. And part of that is about John 3, 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So Jesus is the light. He comes into the world. He's the cornerstone. Believe in him. You won't be disappointed. And people say, I'd rather have my darkness. I love darkness. I hate light. No, thank you. Reject the cornerstone. And for those who reject Jesus out of unbelief, Verse 8 says, Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Many people are offended by who Jesus claims to be, and they stumble over what he says. So here's just three examples. You can read through the Gospels and find more, but here's three. So go to John chapter 6 again. John chapter 6. Let's start at verse 33. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. That's when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never Thirst. So look at verse 41. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. And then flip over to verse 60 and 61. Therefore, many of his disciples When they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? 
But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? And then verse 65 and 66. As he was saying, for this reason I've said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So here's Jesus claiming, I'm the bread of life that came from heaven. You can't even come to me unless it's given as a gift of grace granted to you by my Father. And that caused a lot of people to stumble. We're not going to follow you anymore. We're going to grumble about that and we're going to leave. They reject him. Or, not just the teaching of Jesus, but the death of Jesus is a stumbling block. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. Section starts in 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 22, indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So as Paul's preaching about the death of Christ, which we'll be celebrating on Good Friday, the Jews in the audience hear that as a stumbling block. We're scandalized by that. How can we have a crucified Messiah? We know Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree. He's under God's curse. He can't possibly be the Messiah. We stumble over that idea. And the Greeks, or the Gentiles, are saying the, the word foolishness is related to the word that gives us the word moron. Paul, Paul, you sound like a moron when you talk about this God of yours dying on a cross. Paul says, I know that's the reaction I'm going to get every time I preach. The Jews is stumbling block. Greeks is foolishness. But to those who are the called, effectually called God, says, let there be light. There's light in that soul. They hear Christ crucified and said, that's the power and wisdom of God. So if you're a believer this morning, God did that in your heart. That when you heard about a crucified Christ, you didn't reject it and say, I don't need that or that can't be right, or there must be some other way to get right with God, or whatever it causes you to stumble about the death and salvation of Christ, God opened your heart in such a way that you embraced it as the power and wisdom of God. And then the way of salvation itself by Jesus is also a stumbling block. Go to Romans 9, beginning at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles, people who aren't Jewish by their ethnic background, who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. So remember Paul, later in Philippians 3, will say, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So Gentiles heard about this righteousness that's found in Christ as a gift, credited to us, 
Christ's perfect righteousness put on our account, our sin put on his account. They heard about that, and they attain righteousness, this right standing in God's sight. But Israel, ethnic Jews, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. In other words, it wasn't and isn't. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So this text keeps getting quoted in the Gospels and in the the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the cornerstone. Believe in him. You're safe forever. Reject him, and you're doomed forever. So two observations. That first one I just kind of said. Man's rejection of Christ has serious consequences. Those who disbelieve and disobey will be destroyed. Go to Matthew 21. Matthew 21. Jesus has just told a parable about a landowner and the vine growers who end up killing the landowner's son. And then Jesus, in verse 42, says, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whoever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood he was speaking about them. So like a wooden boat crashing into a big rock in the ocean, the rock is unmoved, doesn't budge at all but the boat is splintered into a thousand pieces. Or like throwing a fragile glass against a stone wall, the wall is not harmed at all, but the glass is utterly shattered. Those who reject Christ will be ruined. Jesus himself says that. The rest of the Bible says that. And a second observation is man's rejection of Christ does not change God's plan. In spite of the builders rejecting this stone, the stone still became and is the cornerstone. Did you notice that? It's like Psalm 2. Remember, it starts off, why are the nations in an uproar? And why do the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and his anointed? We you know, shake off their bonds asunder and all that. And, and God, who is in heaven, laughs. And he says, but as for me, I have installed my king on Zion. It's like, you're not changing my plan. You don't have to like it, but Jesus is king. You don't have to like it, but Jesus is the cornerstone. And you aren't rearranging my plans just because you reject it. God's sovereign purposes are never frustrated by a lack of human cooperation. God always has the last word. People are fully responsible for their unbelief and disobedience and their rejection of Christ and or their doom because of it is also part of 
a plan God appointed. We see that in Acts 4 as well. Acts 4, this is... How to interpret what happened on Good Friday. 427. Peter says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So to hear that blending, here's Human responsibility. Herod and Pilate and Gentiles and Jews all freely rejected Jesus. They all wanted to get rid of him. They were all willingly involved in getting him crucified. And in doing so, they were carrying out God's eternal plan. Sometimes that's called compatibilism. God's sovereign plan and human responsibility are compatible. They're not enemies. They're friends. They fit together. So God always gets done what he wants to happen, and he does it through even the sinful choices of people. So man's rejection of Christ does not change any of God's plans. So as we close, it should be clear, you can't be neutral or indifferent about Jesus. Either you believe in him and come to him and esteem him as precious, or you stumble over him and don't believe in him and reject him. You can't sit on the fence. If God is convicting you this morning, repent of your rebellion against Christ's rightful authority. That's what it boils down to. All of us are born with hearts that say like the people in Luke 19, we do not want this man to reign over us, referring to Jesus. We all have hearts that say, I want to be my own king, and I don't want anybody, including Jesus, to tell me what I can and can't do. And here comes Jesus saying, I'm your rightful Lord. Will you bow or not? Will you submit or not? And our hearts, until grace does something in us to change us, says, no, I don't want anybody to reign over me. So we need to repent of that rebellion against our rightful king, And turn away from any efforts to make up for our rebellion or make peace with God because of something we can do. Titus 3.5 says he saved us not because of works done by us, but according to his mercy. So salvation, being rescued from sin and restored to God, has nothing to do with what we do for God. It has everything to do with what God has done for us in Christ. And so we trust in Jesus to do everything necessary to save us. So Friday is Good Friday. We'll be remembering Jesus' death on the cross and that it's the only way that our sins could be forgiven. Nothing else could ever take away the guilt of our sin. Nothing we could do by good works or going to church or anything else. Remember we saw in 1 Peter a few weeks ago, we weren't redeemed by perishable things like silver or gold from our feudal way of life inherited from our forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb without spot or blemish, the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way sin can be forgiven and washed away. And then next Sunday, of course, is Easter, and we'll be celebrating the truth that God raised Jesus from the dead on the third day, showing that Jesus was victorious over sin and death and hell. Let's pray. 
Well, Lord, we thank you for this plan of salvation. Again, we thank you for including us in it, for opening our eyes to see, opening our hearts to embrace Jesus as Savior and King and cornerstone and treasure and all that he is. He's our all in all. And so we thank you for Jesus and all that he has done for us and will do for us in the future. We want to rest our lives and our confidence in him alone. I pray again for anyone who's still rejecting Jesus, either very defiantly or just by indifference, Lord, that you would break through that resistance and bring them to the Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing Cornerstone. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. My hope is built on nothing less in Jesus' blood and righteousness, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak, made strong. In the Savior's love, through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor holds within the veil. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. shall come with trumpet sound who oh, may I then in him be found 
Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless they stand before the throne. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord of all. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.